My name is Chris Thomas. I'm the head of the International Dispute Resolution Program at the National University of Singapore's Center for International Law. Uh, I've been a private practitioner for many years. I've acted as external legal advisor in uh, trade negotiations, uh, such as the North American Free Trade Agreement and other such negotiations. I've also been active as counsel. I did counsel work in many NAFTA disputes, both in the state-to-state -state dispute settlement area as well as in investor-state arbitration as well. Uh, more laterally, I've been sitting as an arbitrator in international investment disputes and commercial disputes. Um, I will be talking today about the current enthusiasm for the possibility of establishing an appellate mechanism for the review of international investment treaty awards. This is something which has gained great prominence in the last couple of years and on an accelerating basis as a result of the European Union's decision to press for the establishment not only of an appellate review system but also for a standing tribunal to, revolve in, to uh, decide in investment disputes arising under uh, the free trade agreements which are being negotiated by the European Commission. There's been a lot of interest in this and the purpose of my presentation today is to try to discern the reasons for that. And that involves an historical inquiry. I want to go back to the beginning of the development of the ICSID Convention and discuss some of the assumptions and some of the policy choices that were made by the drafters of the Convention. It's my belief that the reason why there is now such uh, an interest in appellate review is that there has been a divergence between how the drafters anticipated the exit system would operate and the kinds of cases that would be taken to arbitration and what has actually happened in real life. Um, the convention was of course developed over 50 years ago. It was an initiative started by the executive directors of the World Bank in the early 1960s. The primary proponent of the convention was the bank's general counsel Aaron Brokers. And Brokers very much was the architect, or the principal architect of the convention, although he consulted with many legal experts. He chaired a legal committee in Washington, D.C. to review a draft of the convention. And of course, he dealt with the members of the executive directors of the bank uh, in the process of elaborating the convention through a number of different drafts. We often forget that the convention contains two forms of dispute settlement, arbitration, and conciliation. So there is a conciliation part to the convention and it was expected that conciliation would be used quite frequently. In fact, conciliation has been used very little. In the history of ICSID, to my knowledge, about 10 cases have gone to conciliation. In contrast, well over 300 cases have gone to arbitration. So we know that the arbitral provisions of the convention have ended up being used far more often than the conciliation provisions. Now, let's begin uh, by just briefly summarizing what the drafters decided to do in terms of the design of the convention. First of all, they opted for ad hoc arbitration, and I'll discuss a little bit of that uh, later on. The second thing they did was they, they knew that there would be the possibility of inconsistent decisions. In other words, the way that uh, Tribunal A dealt with a specific legal issue might be different from the way in which Tribunal B would deal with the issue. We'll come back to that because I think that's an important point to bear in mind when we look at the uh, pressures for the establishment of an appellate mechanism. 
They also tended to believe that a simply drafted description of the qualities of an arbitrator would be sufficient to establish the, uh, the, the way in which an arbitrator should conduct himself or herself. We'll come back to that because obviously the world of the 2000s is very different from the world of 1962 or 1963. And it's quite clear that in recent years, states and other, and indeed many critics of the system have decided that it's necessary to provide much greater specification of the duties and responsibilities of arbitrators. Another thing that the drafters did was that they assumed perhaps that the arbitrations would not be entirely confidential, but that they would not be in the glare of the public, uh, of the public eye. And therefore, we find, for example, the ability of the parties to control who could attend the hearing. Um, they didn't provide that there was outright secrecy, but they did allow the parties to decide who could attend the hearing, which practically speaking meant that the hearing could be kept behind closed doors and not open to the public. The other thing that the drafters did was to provide that the awards would be kept confidential unless both parties agreed to their publication. These give us a sense of the kind of system that they thought they were developing at the time. And each of these issues that I've just identified have been subjected to stress and re-examination in recent years. Uh, two more points uh, warrant noting at this stage of my presentation. The first is that the drafters decided to delocalize the ICSID arbitral system. And by delocalization, I mean that they decided that the national courts of the contracting states that acceded to the convention would not play a role in any respect in relation to the review of an arbitral award. So the arbitral tribunal would be created and administered under the convention and the, any award rendered by the tribunal would be subject to a review by an ad hoc annulment committee um, that was an international review committee. It would not be the courts of any particular contracting state. And we'll come back to that later on as well. What this effectively did was it excluded the role of national courts from uh, reviewing uh, exit awards, but it also, as you'll see later on, it turned the courts into enforcement bodies. And uh, the ICSID convention contains particularly strong language on the way in which uh, ICSID awards are to be treated by the courts of the contracting states. We'll come back to these, but let's take stock of uh, the world as it evolved. It's important to note that from about the late 1960s, the ICSID convention entered into force in 1967. In the late 1960s through to the end of the 1980s, to the extent that bilateral investment treaties provided for um, investor state arbitration, they opted for ICSID arbitration only. So the arbitration clause of a typical bilateral investment treaty would simply say that in the event of a dispute arising, the investor or the state concerned could submit the matter to exit arbitration. And in a sense, what most of the first few hundred of a few hundreds of bilateral investment treaties did was they plugged into the convention. So the convention existed and the bilateral investment treaty would simply say, 
we will provide for exit arbitration, which then would take the disputing parties into the operation of the exit convention. Now, this began to change in the early 1990s. With the uh, downfall of communism in Eastern Europe, the rise of uh, market liberalization in many parts of the world, we find that states that had traditionally not been interested in investment treaties began to negotiate and accede to these treaties. But many of these states were not yet uh, parties to the exit convention. So, for example, the Russian Federation still isn't a party to the exit convention. Neither is Vietnam, Poland, Laos, and there are others that have not yet exceeded or simply are not interested in acceding to the convention. As a result of that, if they were minded to enter into a bilateral investment treaty, it was necessary to provide for the institutional mechanism to re resolve disputes arising under them. And therefore, what we begin to see in the early 1990s are provisions in treaties which allow for a variety of different possible arbitral rules to be applied. They contemplated often that ICSID could be applied if both states became parties to the ICSID convention because the convention is only available in those instances. But if, the, if only one state party to the bilateral investment treaty was, a, was an ICSID contracting state, then one would have to look at other arbitral rules. They could look at the ICSID additional facility rules, which were available for that type of situation, or they would have to provide for some other rules, such as the UNCITRAL arbitration rules, or even the rules of a regional arbitration center, such as the Stockholm Chamber of Commerce. The key difference to note here is that for this universe of non-ICSID treaties, those arbitral rules all require the arbitral tribunal to establish a place of arbitration. And it is the courts of that place of arbitration that will have a reviewing power in relation to the conduct of the arbitration. And so as we look at the situation in the pre from present day perspective, we see the ICSID convention, which is an international regime, which is disconnected largely from the courts of nationals of, of, of their signatories. And then we have the non-ICSID regime, whereby the judicial review powers are exercised by national courts. And we know that we have seen um, uh, reviews of these types of awards by many courts, including the United States courts, the Canadian courts, the Swedish courts, the Swiss, the French, uh, the UK courts, the, and most recently, in a very prominent case called Sanum Investments versus the Democratic Republic of Laos, by the Singapore Court of Appeal. So these are the two systems which have emerged over the years. And it's important to note that when one looks at the recent attempts by the European Union and its counterparties, Canada on the one side and Vietnam on the other, their planned institutional reform of the investor state arbitral system is intended to deal not only with arbitrations conducted under the ICSID regime, but also arbitrations that are conducted under the non-ICSID regime as well. So this is an important point for us to bear in mind. Let's go back, having given you a brief description of the, uh, the situation in terms of the evolution of investor state arbitration for treaty disputes. I want to go back now to the early 1960s and discuss the policy choices made by the drafters of the convention. I'm going to spend most of my presentation talking about the convention because it still accounts for the lion's share of investment arbitration. 
an important proportion of cases are non-ICSID cases, but for the purposes of my presentation today, I'm going to focus on the ICSID convention. And I'm going to state some of my conclusions at the outset um, because I want to come back and develop these themes over time. My first point is that I think that the drafters of the convention did not anticipate what I'll call the degree of connectivity between individual cases. I'll explain what I mean by that as I go through my presentation. But essentially, my contention is that if one reads the negotiating history, one will see that the drafters anticipated that a dispute rendered, for example, as a result of a dispute arising, an award rendered as a result of a dispute arising under an investment contract between state A and investor B would be of little relevance to a dispute arising between state C and investor D. That has not turned out to be the case for reasons which I will explain. I think it's also fair to say that in describing the duties of an ar and qualities of an arbitrator, the drafters did not anticipate what modern day international arbitration looks like. There have been uh, enormous changes in the practice of international arbitration. And there has been the emergence of a class of essentially full-time arbitrators. And the ethical and professional obligations that arise with this emergence of arbitration into the mainstream of international commercial dispute resolution has meant that the, there have been concerns raised about whether or not the framework of the Exit Convention is sufficiently attuned to the demands of international practice in the present day. The third thing, which is an interesting point, and it really goes to the heart of, our, of, of whether or not there should be appellate review, is this, is that the drafters of the Exit Convention were not terribly concerned about the legal correctness of the awards. They were more concerned with ensuring that the arbitral process operated with uh, a high level of integrity. But insofar as the actual decision of the tribunal was concerned, they did not attach a high degree of importance to legal correctness of the decision. And that is something which is now very much challenged, both in the academic literature, but also in increasingly by some states. And I think that the last thing that they did not anticipate is the degree of public interest in investor state arbitration. I remember as acting as one of the external counsel for Mexico in the early 19, in the mid-1990s and early 2000s, the, the visceral response that claims against Canada and the United States generated in those two countries, uh, they, they became very quickly highly politicized and there were a number of non-governmental organizations and legal academics and others who began to question why Canada and the United States had agreed to a form of investor state arbitration under the NAFTA. And I think it's fair to say that it took the NAFTA ministers by surprise. And as a result of that, the initial practice of NAFTA tribunals, which was not to keep the NAFTA arbitrations confidential, but to keep, the, keep a lid on the amount of public disclosure, began to change. And NAFTA ministers realized that they needed to open up the process in order to meet the uh, legitimacy objections that were being raised by many critics of the system in the early 2000s. 
this was not anticipated by the drafters of the ICSA convention back in the early 1960s. Now, who would decide? This is the first question that we need to think about in the design of the ICSA system. We know that the uh, drafters opted for ad hoc arbitration. And by ad hoc arbitration, what we mean is that a tribunal would be constituted for the sole purpose of deciding the dispute and subject to its resolving any post-award issues such as correcting mistakes or um, deciding any issues that it had, had omitted to decide in its award at the request of a party. Once the tribunal issued its award, its task was complete. It was functus officio and the tribunal would disband. Now the effect of having ad hoc arbitration is that there is no institutional memory unlike a judicial system uh, or even a panel system within the WTO where there is institutional support and you have the members of, for example, the WTO appellate body um, or the Iran US Claims Tribunal sitting on cases on a recurring basis. Ad hoc arbitration doesn't have that. You bring together three arbitrators or possibly five arbitrators for the purposes of deciding the dispute. The dispute is decided and off they go. Now, how would the tribunals be constituted? Well, this is something which is uh, rather interesting because the negotiators or the drafters spent some time thinking about this uh, at the very outset of elaborating a draft text. And they said something which I find to be a rather interesting and kind of, uh, um, well, it's an interesting quotation. And, and what, the, what the commentary to the first draft of the convention stated was the proposal on the uh, on the uh, creation of the tribunal, quote, adopts what is probably the most usual for the method for the constitution of an arbitral tribunal. It can be argued that it is the least desirable method because of the danger that each party will look upon the arbitrator to be appointed by it as an advocate. Under this pessimistic assumption, the umpire, that is the presiding arbitrator, would be the only true arbitrator it has been argued for this reason that it would be preferable to have either a sole arbitrator or a tribunal consisting of five members of whom only two would be directly appointed by the parties. Now why did the drafters pick the least desirable method for appointing a tribunal? It's a good question. And my reading of the negotiating history is this. It was based on essentially centuries of practice in state-to-state -state arbitration. States wanted to control, to the extent possible, the composition of tribunals that would hear their disputes. And it was thought that if this is what states wanted in the state-to-state -state context, the reasoning of the drafters was that it would be acceptable to them in the investor-state context as well. Now, there was a concern, though. The concern of the drafters was that if a state could appoint one of its own nationals to the tribunal, that national would act in a partisan fashion. And if one looks back at the negotiating history, they, you'll see a reference to a book by uh, an American uh, lawyer named Feller, who wrote about the experience of the Mexican-American Claims Commission in the 1920s. And Feller had essentially noted that in the commission, the American and Mexican commissioners inevitably disagreed. And so the only true decision maker neutral decision maker was the umpire. Uh, 
And this, the drafters of the Ixod Convention sought to, um, to correct. And their solution was to create a general rule, and I emphasize it's a general rule because there's an exception to it, that the, um, the, it would not be possible for nationals of the disputing state party to the, uh, the, sorry, let me rephrase that, it would not be nationals of the state party to the dispute or nationals of the state of nationality of the investor. In other words, if we had a dispute under the ICSA convention between a French claimant and the Swiss, uh, the, the, the Swiss Federation, Confederation, on the general rule in ICSA, you would not have a French national or a Swiss national sitting on the tribunal. This is the rule that is expressed in Article 39 of the Convention, but it was subject to an exception, and the exception was that if the parties, disputing parties agreed to the appointment of all three members of the tribunal, then the nationality rule would not apply. But the general rule that was to be taken was that non-nationals should not be sitting, or nationals should not be sitting in these cases. They should be dealt with by non-nationals. And if one looks at um, what happened in terms of ICSID arbitration, for many years, the ICSID cases reflected that. You had no nationals of either the, dispute, the state of the disputing investor or the state of the disputing uh, of the party uh, sitting on the tribunal. Now, this began to change. In the early 1990s, NAFTA, for example, implemented the exception and said that nationality would not be a basis for uh, excluding uh, arbitrators from sitting on the tribunals. And one of the most, I think, interesting NAFTA cases is a case called Glamis Gold versus the United States, where an international claim brought by a Canadian company against the government of the United States was heard by three U.S. nationals. That would not be possible under the ICSID system if you applied the general rule. This happened to be an ICSID additional facility case, or an UNCITRAL case, but nevertheless, that rule had been modified for the purposes of NAFTA arbitration. But partisanship and partisanship alone based on nationality was really what was driving the drafters of the ICSID convention. Now, um, this concern has not necessarily been um, a big issue in the last 20 years. The issues instead that have arisen with respect to the conduct of arbitrators concern uh, the following, and I'm only going to identify three or four of them because one could go on for a long time. This could be an entirely separate lecture. But one of the first concerns is the question of double hatting. And that is where an arbitrator is acting as counsel in another case. And the question is, and this goes back to this point I made at the beginning about connectivity, is there a chance that the arbitrator may act in a way in the dispute in which he or she sits as an arbitrator that is somehow affected by the fact that he or she is acting for a, a party in another unrelated investor state arbitration? And the concern here is that unlike commercial arbitration, which is essentially contractual based, and where issues arising under arbitration A may have literally no relevance whatsoever for any other arbitration, any other commercial arbitration. What has happened with investment treaty arbitration is that investment treaties give rise to recurring legal issues. A general approach to the uh, doctrine of expropriation, general approach to fair and equitable treatment, 
a general approach to applying general rules of international law or the rules of treaty interpretation. And so the concern with double hatting was that arbitrators might be in some way compromised by the fact that they were acting as counsel as well as acting as arbitrators. And frankly, speaking entirely personally, I came to conclude that, that this was a legitimate concern. And for that reason, I stopped doing counsel work uh, as I began to take on more appointments. Uh, but th that's not to say that there are not people who can come out with uh, well-articulated arguments as to why uh, counsel should be able to both act as counsel in certain cases, but also act as arbitrators in other cases. We don't have a consistent view on the matter, but we do see in recent treaties, such as the Canada-EU treaty, um, a prohibition against double-hatting. So we can see that states have now decided to resolve the dispute, and to the extent that states are looking at this issue, they're resolving it in favor of not permitting double-hatting. The same issue could arise with an arbitrator who acts as an expert in another case. If the arbitrator is opining about the meaning of fair and equitable treatment or about the meaning of expropriation in one case, yet sitting as an expert in another case, there may be questions raised about the um, appropriateness of that conduct. Another issue that has come up is this. I think it's fair to say that the, the number of cases would have greatly surprised uh, the drafters of the ex convention. And I think it's fair to say that they anticipated that the typical arbitrator uh, under the convention would be someone who was, had had a long career either as a diplomat, a law professor, perhaps a government official uh, in some other area, uh, or a private practitioner. And in, a, in one or two instances at the end of their career, they would sit as an exit arbitrator. But this is not what's happened. We now have people who have done dozens of cases as arbitrators. And then this raises questions about appointments. Do they receive appointments from the same law firm? Or do they receive appointments from the same party? Does, that, does the fact that someone might receive appointments from a law firm two or three or four occasions, does that have an impact on their on the, on the perception of their ability to discharge their obligation to act independently and impartially. These are issues which have arisen in the modern day context. Uh, the last one which I'll touch on is just whether or not the emergence of a class of full-time arbitrators, professional arbitrators, in any way um, gives rise to separate concerns. And uh, some people have argued that arbitrators will act in a certain way because they are motivated to obtain further appointments in the future. And so the question of economic incentives is one uh, that some scholars have begun to uh, examine uh, in greater detail. So my, my point here is that if one goes back and looks at Article 14 of the ICSA Convention, which described the qualities of an arbitrator, it's not difficult to understand why, in the modern-day context, some people have concluded that it's too simple a statement. And let me read you what Article 14 requires of an arbitrator. Persons designated to serve on the panels shall be persons of high moral character and recognize competence in the fields of law, commerce, industry, or finance, who may be relied upon to exercise independent judgment. Competence in the field of law shall be of particular importance in the case of persons on the panel of arbitrators. Full stop. 
That's the entire description of what is demanded of an ICSID arbitrator. They must be uh, counted upon to exercise independent judgment, and they must be persons of high moral character and recognized competence. This is the, when, when one challenges an arbitrator under Article 57 of the Convention, this is the provision that um, the arbitrator is held up against. And it, you can see, just from the generality of the phrasing, that it doesn't deal with these issues of double hatting or the issues of repeat appointments or the like. They may be embedded in this idea of being obliged to exercise independent judgment. But I think it's fair to say that many observers, including states, have decided that it is necessary now to go much further and specify uh, in greater detail what the ethical duties and obligations of arbitrators will be. The next thing that the drafters talked about was appeal. It's not as if they didn't turn their minds to it. They did. But essentially, they rejected it summarily. There were attempts when uh, the draft was exposed to legal experts from different parts of the world. There were attempts by some uh, legal experts to say, we should have review for error of law, or we should have review for substantial misapplication of the law. But Aaron Brokers, the chief architect of the convention, was adamant that there should not be review for appeal or, or appeal for uh, review of law. And I'll read you a quote from um, a statement in the negotiating history. Mr. Brokers was of the view that the draft convention did not provide for an appeal against the award. And in his opinion, a mistake in the application of the law would not be a valid ground for annulment of the award. And the reason for that is, he said, this is an inherent risk in an ad hoc arbitral regime. So what was provided? What did they decide to provide in the convention in terms of review? Well, the, review, the grounds for review are set out in Article 52 of the convention. And what you'll see when you look at it is that they're very much concerned with preserving the integrity of the arbitral process. Was the tribunal properly constituted? In other words, a tribunal that was not properly constituted lacks the power to discharge uh, its mandate. Did the tribunal manifestly exceed its powers? Not did it exceed its powers, but did it manifestly exceed its powers? Note that inclusion of that adjectival modifier. Was there corruption on the part of a member of the tribunal? An obvious reason to have a, a, an award set aside. Was there a serious departure from a fundamental rule of procedure? Note again, not just any departure, but a serious departure, and not just any rule of procedure, a fundamental rule of procedure. Or finally, whether the award failed to state the reasons on which it's based. So one can see from these various grounds that they're quite narrowly circumscribed. And what they're concerned about is making sure that the tribunal was properly constituted, that it conducted itself in accordance with its jurisdictional mandate, and that means it didn't exceed the mandate, but also similarly that it exercised its mandate, that there was no corruption, that it stated the reasons, and that it followed the fundamental rules of procedure in the conduct of the case. So those were the issues that would give rise to a possible annulment if a tribunal was alleged to have transgressed one or more of those grounds. Now, that set of grounds was buttressed by the next provision in the convention, which is Article 53. And Article 53 raises a bit of a conundrum for states that now want to create an appeals mechanism. Because it's very clear 
that the drafters of the convention intended that the only basis for reviewing a Nixit award would be the ground stipulated in Article 52. So Article 53 buttresses that by stating, the award shall be binding on the parties and shall not be subject to any appeal or to any other remedy except those provided for in this convention. So they've made it crystal clear that there was not supposed to be anything else. Now this raises an issue for states that want to use ICSID, the ICSID convention as a means of having a, an investor state dispute, but also want to graft onto the convention the idea of an appeal. Because Article 53 seems very clearly written to preclude the possibility of an appeal. That's an issue. It's understood to be an issue. We put that to one side for the purposes of today's lecture. Finally, I mentioned at the very beginning of my presentation that one of the things that the drafters of the convention decided to do was to actually, instead of allowing the courts of the contracting states to exercise any kind of review power, in deciding instead to turn them into enforcement bodies. And this is one of the most unusual aspects of the ICSA convention. Because each contracting state, when it ratifies a convention, undertakes the following obligation. And I find, think this is quite a powerful obligation. Each contracting state shall recognize an award rendered pursuant to this convention as binding and enforce the pecuniary obligations imposed by that award within its territories as if it were a final judgment of a court of that state. In other words, this is to make it clear that there is no reviewing power whatsoever when a court is presented with a certified copy of an award, an exit award. Rather, the court is to enforce that award without review as if it's an award of a final court of that contracting state. Now note that it's the pecuniary obligations of the award that have to be enforced. And the reason why they inserted that word is because the drafters contemplated that awards could not only grant pecuniary relief, in other words, monetary damages, they could also grant non-pecuniary relief. They could order a state to do something or call upon a state to stop doing something. <coughs> and so therefore, um, when it came to enlisting the support of other ICSID contracting states' judiciaries, it was decided that rather than require them to give effect to the entirety of the award, the only part of the award which they absolutely had to apply and enforce were the pecuniary obligations contained in the award. Now, when you look at these provisions, self-contained review, narrow grounds for review, no appeal or any other remedy, and turning the contracting states' courts into enforcement agencies, this was a very, very innovative scheme that had been developed in the early 1960s. And this was a regime, of course, which did not place a premium on the correctness of the awards. And there was a very prescient comment made by a legal expert who was consulted during the course of the elaboration of the convention. And he referred back to Article 54, the article I've just read to you. And he said, the section should be accepted, regardless of the fact that on paper it appeared a strange innovation. The final result would depend on the quality of the awards given. If the awards were good, they would justify the acceptance of the system. But what's left unsaid in that comment is what happens if the awards are not good? What happens if an award is based on a major error of law? 
the system would not be able to deal with it because it's carved out of the review system. And yet it has, the award has, its pecuniary obligations have to be given effect by all exit contracting states. So this is the situation as we stand today, is that under the ICSID regime, there is no power vested in an annulment committee to correct for legal error, short of some other error which does give rise to annulment. In other words, you could have a legal error which is bound up in a manifest excess of jurisdiction, or you could have a legal error which is bound up in a serious departure from a fundamental rule of procedure. But if the tribunal has stayed within its jurisdictional mandate, if there is no corruption, and there has never been an allegation of corruption in respect of any exit case, if it observed all the rules of procedure, but the award is arguably legally incorrect, the award will stand under the current system. Now the question is, does that make sense in the present day circumstances? I'm going to try to um, suggest to you that the reason we ended up with this system is in part because of the assumed future caseload of ICSID dispute settlement. And what one finds when one goes back and looks at the negotiating history is that the expectation was that the vast majority of the cases that we be, would be heard by future tribunals would be contract disputes. Let me read you a quote from Aaron Brokers uh, at a meeting of regional experts in Bangkok, Thailand. When the convention was being elaborated with the authority of the executive directors of the World Bank, Mr. Brokers went and conducted consultations with legal experts around the world. So there were four meetings, one held in Ethiopia, one in Thailand, one in Chile, and one in uh, Geneva in Switzerland at the United Nations headquarters, or not headquarters, but European headquarters. And in Bangkok, this is what Mr. Brokers said. If the convention were limited to disputes arising out of investment agreements with governments, perhaps 95% of possible disputes would be covered. The reason why the draft went beyond the case of investment agreements in a permissive sense, he said, was to take account of different situations prevailing in different parts of the world and specifically to permit ad hoc submission of disputes, which he thought was very important. So what Mr. Brokers said repeatedly, uh, both to the executive directors but also to legal experts, was that he believed that contract disputes would form the majority of the cases that would go to the exit in the future. Now, in my slides, I have the most recent chart taken from the statistics that are published on an annual basis by the uh, exit secretariat and put on its website. And what one can see now is that whereas Mr. Brokers predicted in 1962 that 95% of the cases would be contract cases, now, if we look at ICSID's caseload, 84% of the cases are investment treaty cases far fewer cases arise out of contracts. In fact, on the most recent statistics, 6% of the cases are contract cases. Now, why is this a significant assumption? The reason for it is this. If we think that, a, that future cases will be contract disputes, then one would assume that there's very little connectivity 
between the cases. Let me give you, try to illustrate this in a concrete sense. An investor enters into a contract with Cameroon. It provides for exit arbitration under their contract. A dispute later arises, it goes to exit arbitration. Another investor enters into uh, an investment contract with Peru. A dispute arises under that contract. The exit convention allows the parties to determine the applicable law. And it's almost certain that in that type of framework, the law of Cameroon would apply to the first dispute and the law of Peru would apply to the second dispute. It's possible they could provide for some other law, but I think it would be assumed by the negotiators that most likely it would be the law of the host state. Now, the exit permitted international law to apply in addition, but if there was an express choice of law, and that express choice of law was restricted to national law, then what we would have is essentially a kind of a commercial dispute taking place. And the only common thing between the Cameroonian investment dispute and the Peruvian one would be the exit convention itself. And other than general interpretative issues as to how to apply the convention, or perhaps some general rules of international arbitral procedure, there would be very little connectivity between those two disputes. One would not expect a solution arrived under the law of Cameroon to necessarily have any relevance whatsoever to a tribunal that's considering a contract dispute arising under the law of Peru. But that's not the system that we have as a result of the caseload that has developed over the years. If we go back to the statistics I just mentioned, 84% of the cases are treaty cases. And those cases, even though as a matter of law, the disputes apply only as the cases are decided and are binding only as between the parties that are uh, before the tribunal. In reality, there is a quasi-precedential effect given to these uh, awards. In other words, we see that both subsequent disputing parties and subsequent tribunals regularly refer to the decisions of prior tribunals, particularly when the decisions are rendered under the same treaty. NAFTA tribunals regularly refer to other NAFTA tribunals. Tribunals established under the, Euro under the Energy Charter Treaty regularly refer to ECT decisions rendered by prior tribunals. Now those prior decisions are not in any way binding precedent in the sense of a common law legal system but they are de facto precedents. They are certainly the grist for the mill of legal argument. And so we see that we have a large body of case law interpreting various treaties which parties and tribunals alike cite when they formulate their, either their arguments or the reasons given in subsequent cases. In addition to this, we have the rules of treaty interpretation under the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. We have the Articles on State Responsibility, which are cited again and again in every case. We have general rules and principles of international law, which are applied by tribunals. And so now, the system that we are uh, now dealing with is very, very different from the ad hoc, disconnected expectation of cases uh, that prevailed in the early 1960s. We now have this system of not stare decisis, but a kind of 
of semi-stare decisis, where when tribunals uh, coalesce around a certain approach or a certain principle, you will see that subsequent tribunals will feel that they should apply that. And let me read you a quote uh, from a case where two of the three tribunal members have that view. This is a case called Burlington Resources versus Ecuador. And this is the majority decision. The tribunal considers that it is not bound by previous decisions, and that certainly is well established and well accepted. At the same time, it is of the opinion that it must pay due consideration to earlier decisions of international tribunals. The majority believes that subject to compelling contrary grounds, it has a duty to adopt solutions established in a series of consistent cases. It also believes that, subject to the specifics of a given treaty and the circumstances of the actual case, it has a duty to seek to contribute to the harmonious development of investment law and thereby meet the legitimate expectations of the community of states and investors towards certainty in the rule of law. That's the majority approach. But in the very same case, the dissenting arbitrator on this point says, and I quote, Arbitrator Stern does not analyze the arbitrator's role in the same manner, as she considers it her duty to decide each case on its own merits independently of any apparent jurisprudential trend. Now, I refer to that case simply to illustrate not only that there's not an absolute consensus on this, but nevertheless to point out that at least two of the three arbitrators there were very content to see that if a consistent approach had been taken by prior decisions, they had a duty to apply that consistently taken approach in the case before them. And this illustrates my point about the role and the level of connectivity being, between cases that now is seen to exist by participants in the regime. I can illustrate the connectivity in another way, and I find this to be a really fascinating uh, way to illustrate the point. Um, in a case called Waste Management versus Mexico, it's called Waste Management 2. There were two cases. This is the second case, and it proceeded to an award. A tribunal that was chaired by then-Professor James Crawford, now uh, a judge of the International Court of Justice, uh, reviewed various decisions of prior NAFTA tribunals in an attempt to synthesize a general standard of what it what fair and equitable treatment meant within the context of the NAFTA. And his the tribunal statement is um, contained at paragraph 98 of the award. I'll read it. I, I'm, not going to, uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but just to give you a sense of what the tribunal said. It said the following. Taken together, the S.D. Myers, Mondev, ADF, and Lowen cases, these are all four prior cases, suggests that the minimum standard of treatment of fair and equitable treatment infring is infringed by conduct attributable to the state and harmful to the claimant if the conduct is arbitrary, grossly unfair, unjust or idiosyncratic, is discriminatory, or exposes the claimant to sectional or racial prejudice, or involves a lack of due process leading to an outcome which offends judicial propriety, etc., etc. So, what the tribunal attempted to do was to go back and look at prior decisions and say, taken collectively, this is what they appear to be saying in terms of the standard of fair and equitable treatment. Now, what's interesting to me, and I think illustrates this point of connectivity, is this. 
I took a look at Investor State Law Guide and I disclosed that I was involved in the design of this database which uh, looks, uh, integrates all of the publicly available materials. But it's possible to take a look at a case, in this case it's called a jurisprudence citator, and I, and I wanted to know how many cases have cited paragraph 98 of waste management versus Mexico. And what I found is that as of yesterday, 57 tribunals have cited that paragraph in their decisions. But of the 57, the vast majority of them are non-NAFTA tribunals. So they have, what we see is even though the structure of the treaties from which these different tribunals derive their jurisdiction is different from the NAFTA, the elaboration of fair and equitable treatment under the NAFTA treaty by this particular tribunal is cited largely with approval by tribunals that are applying other different treaty structures. And that, I believe, demonstrates in another manner this idea of informal connectivity between these various cases. So, where do, where do we stand? We have a, the current system that we have is what I would call a flat system, in that all of the tribunals are on the same plane. There's no review for error of law. And so, uh, the, each, each award stands and if, it's a, if an award is annulled, it's, an, it's annulled for reasons other than legal incorrectness. There is no formal stare decisis rule, and each tribunal is sovereign in the sense that it can decide a case irrespective of what the jurisprudential trend may be. But as we've seen in looking at Burlington Resources, we see there are tribunals that say they feel that they should contribute to a consistent jurisprudential trend. That's our current regime, and it's a regime that has emerged without any review for error of law. And so does the, the real question which I intend to leave you with is this, does this make sense in the current system? We now know that most of ICSID's caseload involves treaties. Most of the treaties are written similarly, not identically, but they are written in similar fashions with the same menu of legal obligations. Uh, we know that these cases all give rise to issues of treaty interpretation, to other issues of international law, such as the law on state responsibility. And therefore, we have a system where the cases are more connected than uh, what the drafters of the convention thought they were going to be creating when they created the convention itself. Now, what uh, the European Union in Canada and the European Union in Vietnam have done, and it may be that other states that are negotiating with the EU will agree to pursue this approach, is to make a fairly substantial and I would say radical change in the way in which investment arbitration as we've come to understand it would operate if those treaties enter into force. Nothing has entered into force yet and so what I'm saying is based on the treaties as they stand and this is simply an academic exercise to consider how they might operate in practice. But what we see is this. The ICSID drafters rejected a standing tribunal as being clearly impractical in the circumstances of the early 1960s. The new EU model creates a standing tribunal. So instead of ad hoc arbitration, we have the case being initiated under arbitral rules, 
But instead of the parties exercising their autonomy to create the arbitral tribunal, the tribunal will be a standing tribunal and the three members of the tribunal designated to hear the case will be designated by the president of that tribunal. And the state's party to the treaty will appoint the members of that standing roster of uh, tribunal members. The second thing that they do is they have made it very clear that they disapprove of double hatting. And therefore, in the early stages, it's anticipated that members of this tribunal would not be operating on a full-time basis and therefore would be free to take other appointments. But they are not permitted to act as counsel or experts in other proceedings involving investment disputes. So the states have, in a sense, voted with their feet on that issue. They've said they'd reject the idea of double hatting. A third thing they do is they've attempted to impose what I would frankly call aspirational time frames for how these cases should be, un, un, should be addressed. I think they're probably unduly optimistic, but that's a separate issue. I just note it for present purposes. But the most important thing that the treaties do in terms of the presentation I've made uh, so far is they have decided to establish an appeals tribunal and they've decided to widen the grounds for the review of arbitral awards. The appeal, the appeal tribunal will be able to modify or reverse an award based on errors in application or interpretation of the applicable law. And also based on manifest errors in the appreciation of the facts, including the appreciation of relevant domestic law. And finally, for any of the grounds of Article 52 of the ICSA Convention, which we discussed earlier, to the extent that they're not covered by the first two grounds. So now you will have review for manifest error with respect to the appreciation of fact and review for error of law. And this, in my submission, is a very significant change contemplated by the states that uh, have negotiated these treaties, which remain, as I say, as yet not in force. They remain to be approved and ratified. Will this create benefits? One can't be sure. To the extent that uh, critics have, have argued that arbitrators are insufficiently independent, the creation of a standing tribunal, the prescription of detailed ethical rules would seem to meet that particular set of criticisms. Will an appeals tribunal improve the reasoning of tribunals? It's hard to say, but uh, I am not averse to the idea. Uh, I think that one thing that would happen is that the standing tribunal would make a, as any other tribunal does, make an effort to try to be as comprehensive as possible in its understanding of the facts and then laying down its uh, resolution of the dispute. And it may well be that the system would benefit from having a second set of eyes review the decision of the first instance tribunal. Will it create greater consistency and predictability? Probably. If one looks at the experience of the WTO appellate body, uh, my WTO friends tell me that they believe that the appellate body has been a major contributor to the consistency and predictability of WTO law. But note this, the WTO agreement is itself a self-contained legal system. The appellate body's jurisdiction is restricted to the WTO covered agreements. 
how this will work in a world if we have an appellate body for different types of treaties, for example, the CETA between Canada and the EU, the EU-Vietnam agreement, some other agreement, whether we have appellate review where different treaties dock into that system, that will raise interesting issues of consistency and predictability because different treaties are, at the end of the day, worded in different ways. And those differences may give rise to different outcomes. Will it come at a cost to have appellate review? Well, I think that if we look at the WTO experience, the WTO appellate body uh, is used very frequently. It's much more likely than not that if a state loses a WTO case, it will appeal. And so it has become commonplace to go on to a further appeal, and I suppose that one could expect that this might happen as well in the investment context. Um, so that's where we stand. Um, and just to summarize, we live in a very interesting time. Of course, the whole notion of investment treaty arbitration is in, under severe attack in certain parts of the world. It's a question as to whether or not the uh, reforms that are being proposed by different states are adequate to deal with the concerns that have been raised by various, uh, uh, various people. And, and many of these concerns are not necessarily consistent even amongst themselves. But there are concerns expressed. And the real question is, will these types of institutional con uh, reforms make a difference in terms of determining the acceptability of this form of dispute settlement? Or will we soldier on with what we have already? Or will we move into a completely different type of regime if states are minded to do so under the pressure of their citizenry? Thank you very much for your attention. It's been a pleasure to speak to you today.